Like many of you, I'm curious about several topics, and what better way to learn than to speak directly with the people who have the answers that you're looking for? My name is Costa. Welcome to Founder Views. That's what this channel is all about. You're going to hear me pick the brains of thought leaders, CEOs, politicians, and business experts about subjects that I'm thinking about or working on at any given time. From economics, business, real estate investing, Bitcoin, lifestyle, politics, and much, much more. Thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. So Adam, you've uh, you've made some waves in the infinite banking circles with some of your views and trying to trying to <laughs> in the concept and for good reasons and making waves in a good way, I think. So, uh, you know, I, I know we've had a few chats now offline, uh, but I really want to have you on the podcast to talk about some of these views and perspectives, which I think are very important for people to understand. Um, the one thing I don't want to regurgitate other podcasts you've been on. Uh, uh, with that being said, I would highly, highly recommend uh, anyone listening. Uh, I'm going to put in the show notes to, to actually check out some of the podcasts you've been on that I've listened to. And that's how like we've met. Um, so before we get started, you're, you're a financial advisor, uh, life insurance professional. You've been in this, been doing this, what, over 10 years now, at least? I've been in the industry since, since basically 20 for 20, 24 okay. years old. So I'm almost I'm turning 39. Okay. Um, I was doing it through uh, a captive agency before. I've been on my own, I'd say right now for like, for just over 10 years. I'd say 11, 12 years I've been on my own. First few years with all, a lot of things are kind of a write-off, <laughs> as yeah. you know, with you know sales or starting a business. Yeah. Um, but I'd say in terms of being active and being able to feed myself, I guess, I'd say for about a decade, productive okay. decade, let's say. Amazing. All right, perfect. So Let's start with this, right? What is good about participating whole life insurance? It's like saying what's what's good about apples, right? The question is 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 what do you like about the things that you know? So let's start. So if I hadn't met you before and we haven't had this discussion and someone just off the street was like, "Oh, you sell life insurance. I heard participating life insurance is good." I'd say, well, it's good because investing is hard. I'm sure you listen to a lot of investing gurus online. Um, the hardest part about investing isn't necessarily deciding what and when to buy and sell, but sticking with it, right? The nice part about getting a mortgage is that you make a payment every month. You have to do it to stay in the house. And part of it goes to interest. Part of it goes to principal. Whether you like it or not, you're saving every month. And you're committed to it because you have to be. And that's the issue with savings. People can say, I want to save X thousands a month so I have X dollars in 10 years and I'm going to put it in the S&P 500 so it's hands off and low management fees. Great. Well, what happens when you need a new tire? What happens when kid needs braces? There's always something that's going to come up. And it's effectively, I would say it's almost impossible for the vast majority of the population to, unless it's an absolute requirement, electively just say, I'm going to commit to spending this much money every month on an investment. And that's the advantage to investment grade whole life insurance or participating whole life insurance, because in addition to the premium, which is a death benefit, you have that investment component and you're making a commitment. You're making a contract that states, of course, you can get out of it any time, but you know, there's, it's really hard to the longer you're involved and it's guaranteed savings every month come hell or high water. And 
there has been a long history of strong performance inside these PAR funds. You get pretty close to market rate returns without the obvious volatility, and it's managed. And they do it for you. So as long as you commit to that payment, the idea is in the long run, there'll be a pool of capital in addition to life insurance there. There'll be some continued growth there that you can use and leverage or survive off the dividends potentially for years to come. So for savings, which is a hard thing to do, that's the first advantage. And the second advantage I would say is if you're a high net worth individual and you have tax problems, it's a good way to help mitigate taxes. If you have a large non-registered portfolio in addition to active income, and 50 cents on every dollar is going to the CRA, it's not a bad thing to direct some of that non-registered money into one or a few of these participating life insurance contracts. And instead of it being taxed every year, you know, the growth isn't taxed. And in the long run, a lot of people refer to it kind of like a, a GIC on steroids. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so how you just described that? It sound it sounds great. So so where is this? Of course. <laughs> where where is all the controversy coming from? So <laughs> the controversy is coming from what I believe are people making claims that are a not backed up by facts and b not backed up by the insurers themselves, and as a result are compelling people to put more into these products than they otherwise would. So I've looked at yours. I've looked at a lot of them. I'm not against someone making, you know, $100,000 a year, putting a few hundred a month into an investment grade whole life insurance policy, because, you know, once my term is up, once my mortgage is paid, it's nice to have some permanent life insurance. And I believe in that, not necessarily because you want your family to have millions of dollars, just because when, no matter how old you are, whether or not you have any debt, when something happens right away, the last thing you want is your loved ones, you know, figuring out where to take the next dollar from. So there is something to be said about an immediate liquidity injection just to buy time so they don't have to worry about trying to find where all your accounts are and exactly what the situation will be. My issue is that people with low means or those means, instead of being compelled to put in a few hundred a month into a permanent life insurance policy for some protection, they're being compelled to put in thousands a month into an investment because you're becoming your own banker. Because instead of borrowing from the bank, you could effectively borrow from your own facility. The idea is that it's all about where money flows to, some will say. So if you are going to the bank to get a loan, even though you're getting a really good rate, they're in control because the money is flowing to them. However, with this, you can capitalize and create your own bank account and the money is flowing to you. Now, what that means to me, and some will say this literally, and some will just allude to it, when you pay interest to the bank, they're making the interest. And when you pay the interest to an insurance policy, participating life insurance policy, your own bank account, you make the interest. Now, some will say, well, we're not actually saying you're making the interest. We're saying you should invest and act like a bank. And I think everybody should. I think that's good advice. Look at what the banks do. They make investments, they take in deposits, and they lend it out. They give a little bit of interest, and they collect the difference, and they give that to their shareholders. I think everyone should do that for themselves. Use every asset at their disposal, leverage it accordingly, whether it's lending for private reasons, as we've discussed, or just putting money into the stock market and borrowing at a low rate. We should all do that. Try to invest like the bank. But the idea that the core, the the idea that we should be leveraging a participating life insurance policy 
to provide that solution. That's what I disagree with. The idea that you should be buying a big life insurance policy to act like a bank. Um, a, just because you act like a bank doesn't mean you are one, right? And B, why is it that advisors are selling this as a bank account when it's not a bank account? It's just a cool life insurance policy. And that's my thesis here. It's not that it's bad. It's not that par is bad. It's not that becoming your own banker is bad. My argument is that it's just it's just not a thing. It's a marketing tactic. And what's the result of this marketing tactic? Well, compelling people to put significantly more than they otherwise would into these contracts because they believe that they're gaining control over their money or they're becoming their own bank. Uh, all of which I don't believe these claims are true. Okay. So I want to dive into a few things now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've, I've summed up your concerns about infinite banking into like two very broad concepts, which we can dive into in more detail. But, uh, first being just the uncertainty and just lack of overall transparency around the actual dividend that a policyholder actually received, because I mean, you really have no idea what you're receiving until you receive your annual statement. So, you know, but in combination with the fact on how it's pitched, like dividend for, for life, you get X amount, dividend scale, you, you see these dividend rates being thrown around. But at the end of the day, it is pretty, um, like you don't know what dividend you're actually going to get. That's one thing. And then two, from what I gather, is that you just believe there are better investment options out there uh, for people where you can earn more um more interest on your money um, in comparison to the dividends paid into these policies. Is that those two things generally correct or? Yeah, um, I would say the first thing, definitely. The second thing, it's not that there are better investments. It's just that for people who are looking to have a high net worth in the future, the way to do that is by buying investments that appreciate over time, not buying an insurance policy to leverage to buy investments that appreciate over time. Because I believe that if you are putting too much money into this, so much mm -hmm. of that money you're putting in is just being lost in opportunity that you mm -hmm. would have had elsewhere. So are there better investments? You know, of course, you know, that's a hard thing to describe because better or worse is very situational dependent. What I can say for certain is that if you sit in on the insurance company pitches of these products in the context of immediate financing arrangements, which is what this to an extent is, where you buy an insurance policy and borrow back the money immediately, they're specifically designed for super high net worth individuals, which are A, people who have significant non-registered income pay a lot of tax every year, or B, have a small business that's netting after expenses more than a half a million dollars a year. So we're not talking about people who have revenue or asset problems. We're talking about people who have, you know, checked all the boxes and now have tax problems. Mm -hmm. And my issue is I see everyone I come across who bought into this policy big are, are very much in the growth phase, have, have a lot of debt, have a lot of expenses and are putting 25, 35, 45% of their income into this as an investment. Well, my argument is, is no, this is an insurance policy. Put two, 3% of your income into this, 
get actual protection. And then in the future, once you have assets, assets that are paying you positive every month, and you have nothing else to do with the money, that's when you take that extra money and direct more of it into something like this. But mm-hmm. wait to that point in time. So yes, I do believe there are better investments for the vast majority of people putting too much of their money into this. Okay. Um, let's dive into the first one, the, the uncertainty part. Like, you, like you, know, you, you always hear these dividend scales and dividend rates that people are going to receive by getting a policy. Like, why is that misleading? And what, like, why is the actual return on your money uncertain? I see. So a lot of people throw around, and I see this in posts, I see this with other advisors, I even see this with the clients who've been pitched or or bought these policies. They always talk about, well, I'm getting X percent of my money. Let's call it 6%. And a lot of people confuse the dividend scale interest rate with a percentage, with the rate of return, which makes sense because they do quote the dividend scale interest rate as a percent. Mm -hmm. But it's really not that simple. A lot of people don't realize that the dividends you receive are based on the accuracy of assumptions. So when you buy a policy, you are put into a block with other people of similar characteristics, age, sex, um, premiums, so like how much you're putting in, time, all that jazz. And you have a number of different variables, whether it's expenses, mortalities, how much the market will return, interest rates. and A lot of these are very interest rate sensitive, as I've learned over the last few years. And the idea is those dividends will continue to be paid based on how accurate those predictions are. It's very possible that the performance of all those assumptions could exceed their predictions. And instead of your dividends being six, they'll actually be seven or eight percent a year. It's possible that the dividends, that the assumptions won't perform as well as were predicted and the dividends will be less. That's why you'll notice sometimes in these illustrations, it's current minus one. And they, they, they don't say instead of a 6% rate of return, it's a 5% rate of return. They say current dividend scale interest rate minus one. Mm-hmm. And that's because you're not actually getting that percentage on your money. You're getting what they think you will get based on how accurate their assumptions are. And historically, a lot of companies, and when I say historically, I'm talking about 30, 40 years ago. These assumptions have been way off for other permutations of the product, which is why there are a lot of people out there who are receiving a fraction of what they were illustrated. And the reason why they're receiving a fraction of what was illustrated is because when they bought this in the late 70s, early 80s or 90s, interest rates were really high. And now, maybe not right now, relatively speaking, but for a long period of time, they were really low. Everyone says, and you hear this all the time, who could have predicted interest rates would be this low? Well, no one did. And as a result, because of how interest rate sensitive the dividends were, you know, I have clients, some not getting any, some getting a tenth to a fifth of what they were illustrated years ago. And it's one thing if you just bought this as an insurance policy and viewed the dividends as kind of cherry on top. But a lot of people are buying into these products now saying, well, look at this value at age 65, 75, 80. That's great because I can either draw out the dividends or leverage it and collect X thousands a month tax-free till I pass away. And when I pass away, the insurance company takes the debt and my family gets the difference. That's true in principle, but how comfortable are you with regards to those numbers? How confident are you that this insurance company will be giving you 
you know, X thousands a year in dividends when you're in your 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. How confident are, are you that their predictions are accurate? Um, no one could have predicted interest rates went this low. No one could have predicted interest rates went this high this quickly. There's a lot of things that have happened over the last 10 years, I would say, that no one could have predicted. So it's one thing if the insurance companies could say, you know what, Adam, here are our predictions, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years out. And then, you know, people could make an educated argument in and around how accurate those are. And they could say, well, this company is predicting this. And you could compare them and say, you know what, based on where I see the world going, um, this company's predictions align with where I think the world's going. And that's why I want to give them my premium. But the reality is, is none of the companies disclose. Now, I believe this is counter to what the regulations say. None of the companies disclose the underlying assumptions. So how high do interest rates need to stay or be for them to continue these dividends? How high, what does the market need to do? What does real estate need to do? And you brought up something which was really interesting because in one of your previous podcasts, you were discussing with an individual who sell these products a little bit more, the, the real estate component. And I think it's important to realize the value of the real estate and what it's doing right now is irrelevant. All that matters is what they expect it will do. And just a few years ago, who would have thunk that vacancy rates would be this high in downtown Toronto or in major commercial centers all throughout the globe? So is it fair to say that this real estate is going to be around forever? Yeah. Is it going to be as valuable as they thought it would be in the future compared to you know three or four years ago, given the vacancies? Like, I don't know. What are they assuming? And until they tell me what the underlying assumptions are, I think people should approach these products with a critical eye and most importantly, not ascribe certain things to them that they shouldn't be, which is A, you're creating this bank account that is infinite that you can draw money from for life. There, there's no evidence that that will be the case. And if you ask them about it, they won't give you the assumptions underlying those values. Therefore, I think people should just buy a lot less of it than they otherwise would. So look, I, I think that makes uh, a lot of sense. And I mean, there's, there's nothing even really there to, to dispute it or, it or yeah, dispute in any way. Like it, it, it really is that th there's really is no transparency in, in, in this. The, the main thing is the assumptions, right? Like, yeah. I, I think at the end of the day, people have to make educated um, decisions and, and, guesses in a way on, on wh wh where they see the economy going, interest rates, there's so many factors. And when Too you're many. not given that, it makes it hard to make a decision. So, you know, a lot of the, I think a lot of people being sold these policies are just people that are taking the words of their advisors or things they're seeing online, um, which isn't good, obviously. Yeah. And, but remember the, the advisors, they're not making this stuff up. They're not yeah. looking at an illustration saying to themselves, hmm, how can I position this, right, to make more sales? They go to industry events, and I'm reluctant to, to do this, but there's one company specifically, and if you're in the industry or around the industry, you'd know who they are. They have this thing. We've paid out a dividend every year for the last 110 years. Mm -hmm. So you come away as an advisor saying to yourself, well, this is great because I can sell this knowing that my clients will continue to get a dividend for the rest of their life. Well, yeah, just because you've given out a dividend every year for each of the last 110 years 
doesn't mean everybody has received a dividend every year for the last 110 years because mm -hmm. some blocks are profitable, some blocks are not profitable. And as such, you have advisors running around pitching a concept in a certain way, and they're not even given you know, the truth with, with regards to the product. In my book, I talk a lot about, I have a whole section about the vanishing premium litigation, which I believe is kind of the becoming your own banker in infinite banking is kind of like vanishing premium 2.0. Now, if we look at things on a scale, the current becoming your own banker in infinite banking is a fraction of what the claims that were made during the vanishing premium. So on a scale from one to 10 being a scam where 10 was vanishing premium, I'd call this maybe a one or two. Like it's very different. The world has changed. I believe the insurance companies are marketing it different, are more conservative. The reality is you can't have thousands of people not getting paid and still expect the market to, to buy into this concept, which is irrelevant of all the marketing in and around it, participating life insurance. But I don't hear enough from the companies in and around what they got wrong 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, not got wrong from a marketing standpoint, because that's a harder one. The reality is people will hear what they want to hear, especially when they're in sales, just specifically around the underlying assumptions. I get there are rogue advisors who take things to an extreme, but the reality is irrelevant of those specific stories, which there will always be the case in any industry with regards to misrepresentation. I do think it behooves them to be like, this is how our how our, our, our blocks, our assumptions were structured back then. This is what we get, did wrong. This is how we're trying to amend that. This is, we can only give you so much because there is some secret sauce here, some things that are proprietary here. I believe, I would argue that based on the regulations, that's not allowed, but if yeah. someone doesn't come out, down on them, what am I going to do? You know, mm -hmm. but yeah. at the same time, I don't think enough of that is happening. I could be wrong. It could be that in 30 or 40, 50 years from now, these things perform better than what was illustrated. And maybe that's by design. Maybe the insurance companies say, well, we've had all these problems in the past. And maybe they do a great job of course correcting. Even if that's the case, I still do think they owe it to the public to provide the underlying assumptions. Mm -hmm. And until I get those, I'm going to have a hard time telling people they should put $25,000, dollars $100,000 a year. Even if they, so let's say you are a high net worth person. And this does make sense to you from a tax perspective. Well, why are you putting this much money into something when they're just going to be like, when you ask them a question and they say, well, we don't have to tell you and we're not going to tell you. Mm -hmm. Like imagine investing in anything else along those lines. You know, we spoke, yeah. we spoke, you spoke about doing a potential mortgage, right? Imagine me saying, so, so tell me about the property I'm investing in. Imagine me saying, well, I can't, I can't tell you. You'd just be like, well, I'm not going to give you my money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's simple as that. Yeah, for sure. So, one thing for sure is that this product is not for everyone. And, and you know, I, I've seen that thrown around too. It's like, you know, everyone sh could benefit from this, which is totally not the case, right? And you've Correct. outlined some some scenarios where some people, uh, it makes sense. Um, so what about a situation, let's say, where, where an individual uh, entrepreneur, whoever it is, has a windfall of cash, right? Uh, through some sort of event and, they're not they're just unsure of where to deploy that cash. So instead of having that money sit in a bank account until you figure out what you want to do with it, does it does it not make sense to maybe put it 
a chunk of it in a policy, uh, knowing that it's growing, hopefully, and then you can deploy it when ready. Mm-hmm. What about a situation like that? Yeah, I think that's, listen, degree matters, you know, and there's a difference between a million, 10 million and a hundred million dollar exit, right? Of course. Yeah. But if someone is, let's say, sitting on a couple of million bucks and they say, well, I like the idea of throwing $250,000 in there because it grows tax-free. I don't have to pay premiums every more anymore and the dividends will continue to help this thing grow. You know, I don't think that's unreasonable. It's, it just depends on the situation. Um, and listen, it's nice because you can leverage that money and borrow that money back. The only thing I'll say is that I don't, I don't believe that's the majority of the people buying into this concept. Definitely. I don't believe the majority of people reaching out to advisors to become their own bank or do what the wealthy do are doing this because I have $2 million in my checking account after my exit, right? And I don't know what to do with it. That is the exception. That's the rarity. Now, that is an ideal client because that provides, you need to do some creativity. You want to do some research. You want to talk to a few people. So if someone came to me and say, hey, Adam, I have two, I have two million bucks. Here are my insurance policies. Do you think I should dump some money into them? You know, I think I'd say, yeah, do RSPs, TFSAs, dump a little bit into there. You got a few real estate holdings, drop the debt a little bit there. And you should always put the money into places that it's readvancing, right? So mm-hmm. ideally, you put it against your line of credit against your house because you can take it back out immediately. So while it's there, it's saving you on interest. Um, but I'll put it this way. Most of the people reaching out to me, a few of them bought big policies, but had the means to do it. And my argument to them was, I have no issue with what you bought. I just, this is just more of an issue of principle. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't think you should reinforce the companies with this much business given the lack of disclosure. But that's a rarity. Most yeah. of the time it's, you know, people making a couple hundred grand a year, putting 25, 30% of their income into this because it's an investment. And, and that's what I believe isn't the case. Yeah. So speaking on like the lack of disclosure and like back to the uncertainty. So you, you're right. So, so actually, before I, I ask that question, like, do we know what these, uh, these insurance, these par funds are actually investing in, right? Like I, I've heard the yeah. bonds, like bonds, real estate. Yeah, you can, any company you go with, you can download the breakdown of all the holdings, some private placements, real, a lot of, you know, real estate, a lot of mortgages. They do a lot of like big private mortgages, um, a bunch of stocks, a bunch of bonds. I would say it's a very, it's a, a very good pension. That's kind of yeah. how the money is managed. Because there's a yeah. lot of mutual funds out there that you, or seg funds for that matter that aren't going to own buildings, right? So the advantage of this is kind of it's a mutual fund, you know, with pension style management being incorporated into it, yeah. where they have the ability to a lot of discretion, you know, to invest in private placements. Yeah. And so, that's all there. You can download that, see the reports, see the returns. Yeah. You can see all of it. There is, and that's that's why it's hard. Because what do you mean there's no disclosure? My argument is there's no disclosure in and around the most important thing, which is how you get paid. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, from a regulatory perspective, from the, how how they present it to the market, you know, there is a lot of transparency there. I just don't think that that transparency is really relevant to you as a buyer. 
As a side note, come to think of a previous conversations I've had with other advisors, speaking on the assumptions part, I've heard this a, a couple of times. Uh, uh, it's kind of the go-to answer, I feel, is it's like, oh, the, these uh, these insurance companies just have the best of the best uh, monitoring these things and making the assumptions, which is pretty crazy. I can't remember who it was. I had a, I had a friend of mine, and he went to... It was a trading class. Um, and the idea was you're matched with mentors. And I can't remember what company it was. And if, even if I did, I wouldn't mention it. But basically, as you registered online, you went to this class, they taught you how to trade, and they matched you with people. And they said, you know, here are our top teachers for the last, you know, over the last 12 months, here's our top 10 teachers, and here's what they've returned. And he asked him, he's a smart guy, this guy's a data scientist. And he asked him for a list of all the top people each year for the last decade. And they sent it to him. And what he noticed was all the names were always different. If you look at, you know, sports, any five to 10 year period, the top mm -hmm. players are the top guys. It, year over year, irrelevant mm -hmm. of what's happening in the broader market or the broader sport, the broader economy, these guys, maybe not the same level every year, but they are constantly at the top. McDavid, right? Doesn't matter what happens this year. You can say he's going to be top five in the league no matter what. Now would put a lot of money in on it. Yeah. And I'm not saying these guys aren't the best, but if that's true, then tell me how good they are or tell mm. me who they are or let me evaluate it for myself. But I just feel like in investments, we do this all the time. We, we throw out words or explanations that sound good that people don't question because it's, it's said so often. And the reality is, you know, people deserve to know. So if they are that great, why can't they tell us what the assumptions are and what they're returning? Now, maybe the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. It's very possible that the people who are managing the assumptions have nothing to do with the people who are managing the investments. Like the reality is if you're supposed to do the, the, the investments for the par fund and you're looking at a piece of real estate. I think you're just looking at the piece of real estate from a merit standpoint. You know, what's it, the cap rates, what's it worth, what's happening in the market? Where do I think this asset will go over the next 20 or 30 years? And then you make a pitch to the board, whether or not you should buy this piece of building. I don't think you're saying to yourself, Hmm, what are the assumptions of the underlying blocks and what, what does this need to do? So people get dividends. Keep in mind, every block is a different set of assumptions. And I don't know how big or how small the blocks can get. So I think that's the other problem. He could be right and wrong at the same time. These people could be the best, provide the best possible returns. But just because they're providing the best possible returns doesn't necessarily mean the returns are enough to meet the assumptions that the actuaries made 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So yeah. two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. Okay, so so some of what I hear is, look, at the end of the day, you you want to dump some money into these policies. Um, you you likely will get some sort of return, right? Yeah. What what that return is, you you really don't know, but it's safe to say that you know objectively you will get some return. Is that accurate? Hundred percent. And so, I'd say for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Because. What I do know is that these companies smooth out the returns yeah. and they do, if you can read the regulations, companies are allowed to move money around 
to create consistency between the blocks. So if there is a block where the, the, the predictions, sorry, the actual it far exceeded the predictions, then they can move money around from those blocks to subsidize unprofitable blocks. Now, I would argue if I got lucky and I bought, bought in a block where the performance far exceeded the predictions, I should be able to eat all of that, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's a yeah. whole separate argument altogether. Yeah. But nonetheless, um, these companies do want to provide returns. They do want to give returns to the marketplace. They do want to reinforce the existence of the policy. And ten year, my issue isn't 10 years out. My issue isn't 20 years out. My issue is 30, 40, mm -hmm. 50, yeah. 60, 70. All the products that I have on the books that are underperforming, significantly underperforming, the advisors are all dead, sadly. Mm. You know? Yeah. And the clients are all in their, you know, 70 to 80s and 90s. Right. Okay. What are you going to do then? You know? Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So, so we said uh, uh, objectively, we can say very likely you'll get some return. Again, you don't know what that is until your, your statement comes. Uh, so, although there's like, this lack of disclosure or uncertainty around what's going on behind the scenes. At the same time, there kind of is some certainty because, you know, you're going to get something. So my question is, and as an investor, I think any like, you know, wise, good investor, you know, they, they like to know where their money's going, what their money's doing, how it's making money, what their returns are going to be. So a lot of these fundamental things as an investor, they don't get checked through this whole life policy because the, that lack of uncertainty in terms of like what's going on in the back end. So my question is, what what then is an alternative place to put your money where you have more certainty? Personally, I can't think of of many other than the ones that you can physically touch and like it's, you know, no third party in front of you. Things like, you know real estate, you know, it's a property, you can see what's going on in the economy, interest rates, you can make pretty good guesses, you know, the communities, um, Bitcoin, you know, your keys, you hold them, you kind the of index. the index to an extent. Like, yeah, I, try, I, no, I mean, I, I would guess say right. with the index, it's like, look, yeah, you're putting money into, let's say a stock. I don't know who these boards of directors are. I don't That's, know what yeah, the you're companies right. do. I was just thinking about from like, a, you're as close to the like the fees are so low, what it meant is there's there's not a lot of meat being cut off in the middle. But you're right. I see you're you're talking about like full control. What yeah, should I'm you just put talking your money about certainty, right? Like yeah. yeah, like index too. It's like yeah, oh year over year, you can say like I'm gonna get nine, ten percent, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of uncertainty. You don't know exactly what your money's doing, what that company's doing with your money, uh, what that where that company's gonna be in a year, two years from now. So there's. There's to extend quite a bit of uncertainty, even in stock. Oh, yeah. So, so my, my question point is, is like, what's a what's a better alternative for someone who just wants to park some money in like a you know a, a safe environment as can be, but they don't want to put in a bank account because you know your, your money's you know getting inflated away day by day. Like, what's the next best option? That's a that's a really tough thing, and I can tell you personally, that I've done really well and done really poorly with some investments. Like I'm 38 years old. I was did very well early on in the marijuana boom. And, th and then I lost my shirt on a few deals. I got really lucky on a few deals and confused, confused luck with smarts that some have gone to shit. Um, I 
don't think I am the right person to advise on specifically what people shouldn't, should, shouldn't, shouldn't put their money into, especially people who are sitting on a pool of funds from an exit. And if that's the case, I almost think I should be taking advice from them on what I should do with my time and my business and my money rather than they asking me. Um, it's really hard for me to do that because I've never been one, especially now, given what has happened to my own investments over time. I'm never one to tell people what to do with a pool of money. What I've, what I enjoy doing and what I focus on doing is telling people the implications of the decisions that they are making with their money. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I don't have people come to me saying, Adam, I have a million or two million bucks. What should I do? Those are ideal clients for a lot of advisors. But to be honest, like that's not my bread yeah. and butter. Makes- my bread and butter are people coming to me and be like, specifically in the context of the book, here's my situation, right? This is kind of what I'm doing. This is what I was told. Um, this is kind of what I, where I see myself. What do you think? And I can, and I give them some advice with regards to their process or their, their practicality or in and around what they're doing specifically with regards to the permanent insurance policy. So as I said, it, it's hard for me to advise, but if you are the type of person that wants growth and wants certainty and wants control, I think buying real estate and, and or Bitcoin and or gold is the number one person. Yeah. I believe though are, they're a little bit protected, a little bit not, you have the ability of leverage, you can create a business out of it. And there's a lot of tax incentives in and around creating a business. But to be honest, if people had a big sum of money, that's what I would do. Open a corporation, buy a few properties and have a small business, have a credit card under that property, have a separate bank account under that property, charge yourself management fees, you know, get an HST number. We're taxed so heavily in this country. And if you're an employee, there's only so many things you can do to save on tax. So if you do get a large sum of money, the best advice is, in my opinion, if you can start a business, specifically real estate business, that's, I think, the best case scenario for you. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, and I respect the fact that, you know what, um, you know, just being able to say, it's like, yeah, I'm not the right person to provide that advice. You know, it's kind of out of my lane, right? So yeah. I, listen, I don't know if it's necessarily out of my lane, but it's just, I, I don't it's it's really hard to advise people on to where to put their money. I don't money. think anyone can. Like it's like it's such you know? a hard thing to do. You know, it's and the it's it's the irony is that advisors approach it with such ease, you know, in terms of oh, put your money into this fund, that fund, this fund. Like are these funds good? Yeah. Are they safe investments? Yeah. I also believe deep down inside a lot of what the financial services industry does is prop up wealth and not create it. Like if you look at the fees that are being associated with with a lot of these funds, if you look at where the money that you're putting into the funds, where are these where is this flowing to? It's flowing into the stock market, flowing to these massive blue chip companies. A lot of these companies do not care about anyone. They care about themselves and or are colluding with the government to control the things that we do, the things that we hear, the things that we see. Um, a lot of these companies also get massive tax breaks from the government collected a lot of money during COVID, use that money to buy their own stock and pay themselves. Like, I don't think any of these, I had a friend of mine 
who saw some stuff I'm producing and he said, why do you always use the word product? Why do you always use the word product? I'm like, because mm-hmm. that's what these are. These are designed to offer you a service and make someone else money. And that's yeah. kind of the way I view the vast majority of financial services, if not all of it. These are services, right? And they're not designed to make you money. They're designed to make someone else money. Ideally, they your money keeps up with inflation and then a little bit. So you could buy a little bit, you know, the same amount of bread that you, you would have bought 20 years ago, you can yeah. buy today. Right. That's a perfect case scenario. Yeah. But if you want to produce wealth, it's on you. It, it, it has to be on you. Exactly. And, and th- so one of the reasons why I asked this question, it, like in terms of advice is, first of all, I don't think that's a beautiful thing about investing, right? There's an infinite number of ways you can invest and invest successfully. Um, you can pool 10 different investors doing 10 completely different things and all doing extremely well. So, you know, I, I just simply asked the question just to hear someone else's insights. Maybe they're looking at things differently than I am and, you know, to get some ideas and whatnot. So uh, there's definitely not a black and white, you should do this, you know, 100%, you know, so. But I, I will say that I do have a lot of people say, like, don't know what to do. And where should I start? I think everyone should start with, they look at their tax bracket and decide do RSPs, TFSAs or a balance of each make sense. They open a trading account and they buy VFV.to, the S&P 500. And you, and you just start with that. And every day you open up your, your stock app and you see what happened in the news and you see how the market reacts accordingly. And you start to get a feel and you start to get comfortable with the volatility. And then after a few months, you, you pick a company that you like or you've used their product for a long time. And you, you buy a little bit of their stock and then you sell a little bit of their, their stock. I think the best thing people can do is get comfortable with the act of investing. Get comfortable doing it for yourself, by yourself. Don't be afraid of money. Don't act like you need people to manage it for you. Ideally, you get to the point that you just have so much that it makes sense for you to have someone else manage it for you. Yeah. But, you know, with technology these days, you can manage a lot of money for yourself by yourself um, in, you know, minutes a day. Let's be honest. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, so a couple of the reasons why you hear people uh, get into these policies or get attracted for them is like a couple of common things. And one of them, and I'd like to just like quickly discuss uh, a few of them, but like one is... You know, the saying of, you know, having a level of certainty in times of uncertainty. And I think that especially rings a chord today with just what's going on in the world. Um, Do you agree with that in terms of these policies? Like we kind of discussed earlier, it's right in a way these are kind of certain Uh, times are uncertain right now. So I I, I can see why people get attracted to that kind of pitch. So I guess the idea is things are so uncertain. This is certain. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's an argument for buying investments that provide certainty, not an argument for why you should necessarily become your own banker. So if things are uncertain, should you buy, you know, that's also reason why people buy gold or buy Bitcoin Mm -hmm. or buy real estate. Um, That's cash flow because they want that certainty. I also think that the word uncertainty and certainty are bad words. 
I think those are words, specifically the word uncertainty is a word the financial services industry likes to throw around to reinforce their own existence. I've been going to events where fund companies from all the major companies have been putting on since I've gotten to this industry in my early 20s, basically for the last 15 years. Every year they talk about uncertainty. The only certainty is uncertainty. If I meet with someone who is certain about something, then there is something that they are, are missing because mm -hmm. certainty doesn't exist. People who do what I do use the word uncertainty to sell you things that I believe you otherwise shouldn't be sold because you believe there is certainty there. Um, now, is there an element of security with this a life insurance policy that you wouldn't get elsewhere? Goes without saying, right? You die, family gets the money, you keep the policy, you live, dividends accumulate 100%. But the way I go about my own business is I don't like these, I don't like to play semantics. I don't like these words. I'm very much a numbers guy. What do you owe on your mortgage? What do you make? How much cash you got in the bank? And if you weren't here tomorrow, what, what do you want for your wife or your husband? That's yeah. it. There's no certainty or uncertainty. Like there, there is always uncertainty, right? Yeah, so totally. it's hard for me to evaluate, you know, that simply because that's kind of not how I approach my business. But I will say that when it comes to these products as being life insurance policies, because of the nature of them, because they are paid out when someone passes away, people confuse the strategy for working with the product itself. Like you have a family, you have someone who bought a big investment or becoming a banker into a banking policy. Let's say it was, it was a young person, sadly, and they passed away and the money came to the family. Well, the family's going to be like, oh, well, this worked. You know, we should get something like this too. We should get these policies. I'm like, well, it worked because it's a life insurance policy. It didn't work because you borrowed against it. It didn't work because you, you know, were making what the banks make. It didn't work because you were using a car, using it to buy a car. It worked because it's life insurance. And I would argue if someone is really that concerned about the uncertainty in the marketplace or their ability to make money, that's why you get a lot of term insurance. Like the majority of what I have is term insurance. I got a $6 million term 20 for 331 a month, right? That I have about 16 years left on. That's certainty. You know, if, if I kick the bucket tomorrow, my family is taken care of. What, what more do you want in life? Yeah. And in 16 years from now, I'll, I'll worry about it in 16 years from now. And my kids are going to be grown up. I'll hopefully, if I don't make any more stupid investment decisions, I'll hopefully have more money by then. But at the end of the day, that's the certainty is in the protection, not in the process of infinite banking or becoming your own banker. So I would say with regards to uncertainty, that's why life insurance is beneficial, not necessarily the investment component yeah. per se. Isn't, um, isn't the, uh, uh, the cash value guaranteed as well? Like, can you, could you say that is kind of way certain? Yeah, of course, there's a guaranteed component, but no one ever buys something because of guaranteed cash value. Mm. You know, if you look at, like, I, I speak to a lot of people on this. No one ever, no one ever says, oh, this is great because I have a guarantee here. People don't even know. Yeah. Most of the people I speak to don't even know that there's a guaranteed cash value. I do have some people who put out a podcast kind of 
going after some of my claims. And, and they said the same thing. Well, the guarantee is great. And I'm like, well, yeah, guarantees are always great, you know, but I'm saying that's not, that's never been a selling yeah. feature. I've yeah. never seen, when you showed me your policy, you weren't like, look at the guarantees. The guarantees are, are a fraction, are, are, are a fraction of what the policy ideally will be worth in the long run. So right. is that a good thing? Yeah. But the reality is, is if you're buying this product for the guarantees, you're paying a premium mm-hmm. for pennies on the dollar. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. So, so another common reason why people, uh, I, I think, get attracted to these is um, just the, the access to, you know, liquidity and funds for opportunities that, that come your way. So do you think that's valid? Yeah, 100%. 100%. But I'm all, I also think that that principle, and this is where I have to give credit to the idea from a, from a philosophical perspective. The idea that you shouldn't have to run to the bank or lending institution mm-hmm. just because you want to scrounge together some cash to take an advantage of an opportunity. And I think it behooves everybody to look at their holdings and say to themselves, if I needed to come up with 10, 100, $250,000, whatever it is, tomorrow to jump on something, right? Can I do it? And if I can't do it, how can I structure things so I can? And I think mm-hmm. everyone should do that 110%. Yeah. So you think that's a, that's a smart approach. If someone can somehow accumulate funds for like a rainy day fund, call it like 250,000 that you're just okay sitting there in the event, like an opportunity fund, like mm-hmm. in the event you needed money for something on investment, something comes your way to have that accessible. Do you think yeah. that's a good idea? Yeah, totally. Totally. But as I said, everything's a matter of degree, right? So ideally you have a little bit of everything you have. Yeah. A life insurance policy you could draw thirty grand from. You have a, a line of credit against your house you can draw, you know, a hundred thousand from. You have some gold you could sell for twenty five grand, mm-hmm. or, or or give to the bank and they can give you a loan against it. Or your car's paid off and you know you could get you know a loan against your car to pool the money you need. You know you should look at everything. Yeah. You know, a hundred and ten percent. And the reality is, is the advantage of life insurance policies is that you don't have to like ask anyone for the loan. You just have to take it. Right. It's always there available to you. And if there are some tax advantages in taking a loan from an insurance policy and securing it with a bank, so there's extra deductions there. Mm -hmm. Um, But keep in mind that you're paying a premium for that. And most of the people that I see who have overbought, which is basically practically all of them, are carrying big debts on their mortgages. So if you wanted to do just that, take that ad- the money you're putting every year and then convert your home to a line of credit and throw it against a mortgage. While it's in mm-hmm. your mortgage, you're paying a lot less on your debt and it's re-advancing. You can borrow that back at any time to take advantage of an investment. Yeah. So, you know, of yeah, course. Makes sense. And, and then ex- touching on that, the the borrowing part, I think the, 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 the another major reason why I think people like this policy is the control element in terms of like the, the payback terms and paying mm-hmm. back the loan on your terms rather than, you know, every month when the bank says you have a due date. What about that reason? Well, that's just based on the loan that you set up with the bank, right? If you can mimic the control you have over a, a life insurance policy from a debt perspective, you can do the same thing 
to your home with a home equity line of credit. You take out a loan, you don't have to pay the interest. They just let the interest accrue every month and you know you add the debt to the debt. So you could do the same thing. Now, the advantage of the life insurance policies, you don't have to worry about getting approved. And with a line of credit, you do have to go to the bank and get more, assuming you don't have one, right? So yeah, that's great, but it's just like any other loan. And that's my point again. You know, What premium are you paying for that benefit? And I would argue that most people are paying too high of a premium for that benefit and can mimic that in other areas of their, their life and have better protection by mimicking it in other areas of their yeah, lives. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, look, Adam, I, I think I covered ev- like the, the topics I wanted to discuss. Um, did we miss anything? No, I think we covered it all. You know, I think we covered it all. And if someone, wants, it, yeah. if someone wants to uh, learn more, uh, get a copy of, of your book, where can they do that? So they go to the website's fortuneorfiction.ca. This has kind of been a a project of mine over the last, I first got the idea to start writing it effectively at the beginning of 2022. I didn't know where I wanted to go with it, um, but it quickly became a marketing ploy in, in the same way that you have people marketing infinite banking, becoming your own banker to sell more life insurance. I'm marketing that I think it's effectively a scam. I don't like to use that word because, you know, on the level of, you know, you know, if, if Bernie Madoff's a 10, this is like a 0.5 on the scale. Yeah. Like you're not, you're not being robbed blind here, right? But my main point is that, A, the insurance companies should and need to do better. They're managing hundreds of billions of dollars of Canadians' assets, um, and they're not really telling you exactly where your dividends are coming from. And three years, see, then the main point is that don't let this concept compel you to put significantly more into this product than you otherwise would if it weren't for the claims of infinite banking or becoming mm-hmm. your own banker. Yeah. Put in a few hundred a month because you want some permanent life insurance with an investment advantage. Don't put in a few thousand a month because you believe it's an asset. Go buy actual assets. That's my advice. And yeah. does that mean that advisors may sell instead of selling a $25,000 a year policy, they'll be selling a, a two or $3,000 a year policy? Maybe, but... I believe that that's the right thing to do for the vast, vast majority yeah, of the population. For sure, and look, I, I've told you this uh, offline as well. I think from the marketing side, uh, you know, you've nailed it. And it, it, you, like I said at the beginning, you're making waves uh, in a good way. You're you're um, you're putting out a very, I think, very important narrative and message around these policies that, that more people need to be aware of and understand and kind of look at things from different angles and perspectives, which you're doing an incredible job of. So um, thank you for that. And that's it, man. Pleasure speaking as always. Thank you very uh, much. I, I enjoyed doing this. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll, yeah, thanks we'll, for 